just to kind of set the stage for what we want to talk about here in bringing God's grace home into our families, um, it reminds me of how, you know, you know, we have so, so much on our, on our plate, and, and we're, we're, we're just going so fast. And, and the, when I was a kid, there was this guy that would come on his TV show, and he would spin plates. You ever remember the guy that would take a plate and put it on a stick? Or sometimes you've seen it at a circus. Well, I think that is a lot like what it is raising parents, uh, raising, raising, having families and being alive today. I mean, we just have so much going on. I mean, you have a plate called your work, and then you got, if you're married, you got a spouse, and, and then you got a plate called work, uh, I mean, for church and, and some friends, and you might be on a, a, a committee or two. But we have smartphones, and we have email and Facebook, and we can do pretty well at spinning all these plates. Everything seems fine until some of these come along. These are children. And they require a lot more attention to keep them going steady. And so you get your plates going, you get your children going, and, 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 and we, we work like mad at it, and once again, we think we're doing pretty well. And then one of these comes along. This is a teenager. <laughs> not a saucer anymore, but it's not a plate yet either. Just thinks it is. Wants all the privileges of a plate, but doesn't have any money. It sure has a mind of its own when you try and put some spin on it, doesn't it? <laughs> well, th that's why we need God's help. And more importantly, we need God's grace to, to, to raise our families. And, and I want to talk about that today. Now, we, if you're visiting our church, you're visiting our church in a, in a, in a, t a year where our entire theme is called Embracing Grace. Our pastor saw fit to set aside an entire year just to focus in on the grace of God. Now, he actually took grief for this. He took grief for this because people say, come on, what, what's, you know, grace all the time? Yes. And here's why. Because Jamie knows something about the Christian life, and something that I've observed along the way too, that most people don't quite figure out. And that when, when most Christians are talking about grace, evangelical Christians, what they're talking about is saving grace. When it comes to grace, they get grace if we're talking about saving grace. But we have a bad habit of stopping the grace right there. We get set free from our sin and our shame and, 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 and our penalty for our sin, and then we go right back on this, this track to somehow we have to do certain things to continue to gain God's favor. Are you with me on this? Nod your head with me if you think you know what I'm talking about. See, I think there's two grand illusions that, that, that the powers of evil and darkness use to work over the human race. The first one is the biggest delusion that most people are uh, functioning under operating under is that they think that the way you get to heaven is you earn your way to God. That you have to do certain things and you'll get into heaven. That is a lie. It's not true. Jesus had to come and intervene in time and space and basically pay the price for us because none of us, the wages, the price for our, for our sin is death. So we couldn't get to heaven. We would, be, we would be gone. So he came and he put his life in our place. The second grand illusion that I think he does is once a person gives their heart to Jesus, then he gives us this feeling, he, he makes us think that we have to pay him back. And the, the rest of our life, we spend trying to pay him back. 
for all that he's done for us. And listen, I, I know of what I speak. I was brought up in a, a, a legalistic context. And it was and basically, it was, it was a church much like, uh, nice people like this, but there was clearly a legalistic framework in how the Christian life was presented. I consider myself a recovering legalist. <laughs> I, I'm in recovery. Um, and if I had my way and I could rule the world for a couple of years, I would change the name on the front of all of our evangelical churches. This would now be Scottsdale LA Meeting. This would be Legalist Anonymous. And we'd all come here because we know all we know all about what we're talking about. And I come and say, hi, I'm Tim, and I'm a legalist. And you all say, hi, Tim. And then I tell my story of my ongoing battle to try get rid of this ridiculous attitude that somehow I can, after I become a Christian, I have to continue to win God's favor, do certain things to get him to love me more, or, or not do certain things to keep him from loving me less. I mean, for crying out loud, he's wanting to say, have you read the book before? Where does it say that I'm going to love you more if you do certain things? I'm not holding back any of my love. I'm loving you completely. You've got all of me. You can't get more of me. You've got it all. And as far as loving you less because you act like a knucklehead for crying out loud, I'm not dealing with you based on how you behave because if I were, you'd be dead. I'm loving you. In spite of what you are, because that's who I am. I'm a God of love and grace. And so, I, you know, I, 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 I was brought up in a Christian home, and we were nice folks. And, and, and you know, they were just doing what they were told. I, I, they, 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 they were told, you get your kids to kind of walk the line, jump through the hoops. And, and we would go to church. There were six kids in the Kimmel family, plus mom and dad. We always sat in the same pew. And we'd go there, and we'd sing spiritedly about the wonderful grace of Jesus. And then the pastor would come up and we become eight Kimmels in the hands of an angry God. And we were just reminded again how much we've disappointed him and fallen short. It was not uncommon to hear things like this. You know, things like, you know, people in the church, Sunday school teachers, people, uh, you know, in our family tree would say something like, boy, I, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. <laughs> Any of you ever hear something like that before? As though Jesus gave a rip about my hair. I've read the book. I've read it cover to cover many times. Actually, one year I was actually really paying attention. What does he think about hair? Because I was refereeing several arguments between parents and kids about their hair. And I've come to the conclusion, basically, God doesn't care. He says, it's your hair. You know, have fun with it. Express yourself. It's like a lab experiment. Have fun. You know, <laughs> and some of you might want to use the chance while you can. Because <laughs> it's going to bail on you. Or how about this one? Do you really think you're representing the precious Lord Jesus well listening to that kind of music? Or, you know, son, when you consider all that Jesus did for you, it doesn't seem like too much to expect in return for you to just sit down there at your desk each morning before you head out to school and just spend 10, 10 minutes reading your Bible. That, that's, that's a quantifiable relationship with God. Coming from well-intended people, adults trying to help someone get a grasp on, on how to live for Christ. I remember uh, I was at church. We, we went to a, a kind of a rural church. 
well, there weren't a lot of people in it, maybe 150 people, uh, a little under 200. But we had a, a really good uh, 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 Sunday school teacher, and he really knew the Bible, and he was, he, was, uh, he was a guru on prophecy. And so it was not uncommon for him to have more people in his Sunday school class, adult-wise, than we would actually have in the church service. But one time, I'd forgotten my little uh, suit jacket out in the car, and I ran out to get, get it in the car, and I heard somebody yelling. And, and so, I, and I was about 12 years old, and I came around, went over a few rows of cars, and here was this man, and his little girl, maybe seven, eight years old, and he was just going after her and berating her because she had forgotten her Bible. And you, how could you leave God's word behind? That is so disrespectful. We're coming to his house to learn about him, and here you would go and leave behind the word of God. How can you expect him? to want to come alongside and help you when you, you show that little regard for him. Now, by the way, I think some of that was him trying to watch out for his own reputation. Now, who's kidding who? We all are tempted to do that as parents and how getting our kids to behave. But I think he also believed that. That God is now disappointed. By the way, a couple things happened. I decided I never want to hear another word this man has to say about Bible teaching. I never wanted to go to his Sunday school class. And I always kind of felt sorry for that girl and tried to always be a friend. And, and she went through some tough times in her teenage years, which is not surprising, by the way. And when people wanted to put her down, even some of my peer group, it just, just nah, it's, there's a lot more going on there than we think. Because why, why do we do this? Why, why, are we, why are we inclined to do it? Because it's easier. It's actually easy to distill the working relationship between a follower of Jesus and Jesus himself down to things that he expects from us in return for all that he has done for us. And his disappointment in us is for the myriad ways we constantly fall short of his expectations. So we get into this thing. And it's the on-ramp to legalism. In one sense, legalism is a lazy man's religion. It's an empty Sunday suit that doesn't require much of a personal relationship with God. In fact, it doesn't require much thinking either. You simply memorize the list of things that nice, good Christians do, and then you try to check off as many as you can in a given week. And then you also study the much longer list of things that nice Christians don't do, and you want to make sure that you not only work overtime not doing those things, but avoiding anybody else that does. And that is very, that's a very easy trap for anybody to follow. You don't have to be brought up in a legalistic church. That, you just have to be a Christian. And, and we just by nature want to make this thing into some kind of an easy-to-formulate plan for living out, what do I do? Uh, with that in mind, I want to throw something up here to kind of set the stage for how I want to bring this home in our families. Uh, one of the worst enemies of grace is working overtime to be good for wrong reasons. And, and I think a lot of us are very committed to trying to be good people. But what if you're being good for wrong reasons? Listen, if you, if you do good things for wrong reasons, you're going to get a bad outcome. It doesn't matter how good they are. And if we're right, trying to get our kids to do good things for wrong reasons, we're not going to like what happens in our kids' lives. That's just the way it is. And so knowing that I was going to be speaking this Sunday, uh, you know, I, I told Darcy, I said, you know, I want to somehow take everything that we've learned up to this point since January, when, since Jamie started talking on grace, and try and distill it down to some kind of easy, easy to grasp little tool 
so we can kind of see this, because Jamie has unpacked the heart of God's grace like I've never heard it before. And if you read Andy Stanley's wonderful book, uh, uh, The Grace of God, another great work that, that he helped us on. So here's, here's what I, I came up with something. You're either going to love this or you're going to hate it. It's called, I'm calling it the grace list. The grace list. And uh, pop that up there for them. Let's get this thing started. What I'm trying to do is, is, is I, I want to differentiate between two paths we can take in our life. And, and, and we don't realize that the one, as noble as it looks, is a trap for us. And it's what I like to call the obedience-based life. The obedience-based Christian life. Now, right away you're saying, is he, is he serious? Is he going to actually critique the obedience-based Christian life? Yes, I am. That's exactly what I'm about to do. And I'm going to compare it to the grace-based Christian life. All right, ready? I'm going to go down a list here. See, the obedience-based Christian life, the primary focus of this is you live to please God. You live to please God. But the grace-based Christian life, you live to trust God. You live to trust Him. There's a huge difference between those two paths. I mean, those are light years apart. And if we don't grasp this, we're going to have trouble from here on out. The obedience-based Christian life focuses on being good. The grace-based list focuses on being connected to God, staying connected to His heart. The obedience-based life is more natural. That's why we go that way, because we want to know, what do I do? I'm a Christian now. Tell me what to do. Okay, I'm going to read my Bible, I'll journal, and I'll witness, and I'll go to church, and I'll serve, and I'll, you know, give me this, give me this, and I'll share with my neighbor. By the way, all those things I just said, perfectly fine parts of the Christian life, unless I'm doing them to somehow win favor, or keep paying God back, or somehow make sure that he's still on my side. So, so it's more natural, whereas the grace-based life is more supernatural. That's why a lot of people want to avoid it, because you really have to trust God. You have to throw yourself into his heart and in his arms and say, I'm letting you run my life. I'm trusting you on this. The obedience-based life is, a, is, is predictable. It's like a march with a left-right, left-right cadence. That's why we like it. You know, it's real easy to get into it. Whereas the grace-based Christian life is more fluid, and it's more like a dance, Except you have no control over the music. You have no say over what music's being played. But Jesus comes out there and he says, I'm going to dance with you on this, and I'm leading. Pick up the rhythm with me and just follow me, and I'll get you through this. The obedience-based uh, uh, Christian life is a performance. It's something that we do for Jesus. Whereas the grace-based Christian life is a relationship. It's something we do with Jesus. The obedience-based Christian life comes off as a duty, as though it's an obligation. I mean, it's the least I can do based on what he did for me. Whereas the grace-based life is a delight, as though it's an honor. I mean, can you believe it? He would actually set me free from my sin. I didn't deserve anything from him, and he, he bought me on a cross. Can you believe he would do that? This is such a delight to be able to live with him and live for him. It's just exciting. See, that's the difference between grace and getting in that that trap over there. How about this one? The obedience-based Christian life promotes fear and creates worry because you always feel, oh man, I need to be doing more. 
I'm just falling short. There I go again, saying dumb things I keep doing. By the way, is this making any sense? Give me a head nod. Because I'm looking at you, I'm wondering, is this making any sense? So you're, you're fearful, and whereas the grace-based life promotes faith and creates calm. Even when you're falling short, you realize, God, I mean, I love the way my, uh, Dennis Rainey uh, uh, with Family Life, he loves to say, he says, God picks up crooked sticks and draws straight lines with them all day long. I love that. We're all a bunch of crooked sticks, but God says, I can work with you on that. I can get you through this. And so you get calm, even when you're struggling with things. He helps you. And then what, the, great, the obedience-based life leads to a lot of guilt and, 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 and shame because you keep falling short. Whereas the, 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 the grace-based life is, is conviction that leads to repentance. You realize, no, that is wrong. That doesn't connect. That, that doesn't resonate with my heart connection to Jesus. And I don't want to keep this path because I love him and I trust him. And you repent of it. Whereas the obedience-based life is very masked and guarded. Because you don't want people close to you. you. You have to wear this mask because if they get close enough to you, they'll see you for what you are. And you don't want them to know that. Because we're, when you're in the obedience-based life, you're just going around grading everybody and grading yourself. And so you keep you guarded, right? Whereas, whereas the, the grace-based life is transparent and vulnerable. You're saying, who's kidding who? Are you kidding me? I know exactly what the struggle is. I, I, I walk around with feet of clay all day long. God, God saved me out of, out, of, out of this train wreck of a life, and, and he can do that for you too. And, and so the obedience-based life breeds critical and judgmental spirits because once again we're always looking to see how well we're doing compared to somebody else and how far they're falling short whereas the grace-based life breeds compassionate and empathetic spirits you see their struggles but you know their struggles because it's the same struggle you've had and God has rescued you from that and you want to help them you see like you see why I use the analogy of like like the AA analogy and the the the, the legalist anonymous because I've never seen people more compassionate for alcoholics and other alcoholics that have, that, that 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 are that are in recovery they they're just so patient and they're so desirous because they know what that's like to be in well that's what we should be like when it comes to people struggling around in sin we should just say I know what that's like Jesus has gotten me through this, and, and he can get you too. And then look at this one. You're not going to like some. You're not really, you're just not going to like this one. Obedience-based Christian life, it, it's exclusive. It's for church people. We want to get to a church where everybody acts like us and has the same little checklist, and we're real comfortable. We're not threatened. That's why people searching for Christ don't always want to come to our churches because they come here and say, I cannot relate to this. Where's the grace-based life? is enfolding for whosoever will. The, the obedience-based life is an outside-in management. Basically, we're in control of it. Our systems we put in place are in control. Whereas the grace-based life is an inside-out surrender. The obedience-based life, this is the last one I want to put up there for you, it lends itself to pride and self-righteousness. Doesn't it? I mean, who's kidding who? why many people don't want to be around Christians because we just stand in condemnation on them. Whereas the grace-based life lends itself to humility and look at this, organic obedience. The grace-based life is about obedience. It's just coming from a different source. 
It's not about me running, driving the bus. It's about Jesus. Because you see, the obedience-based life, you think, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's not what the Bible says. The grace-based life says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. You see the difference? You know, on the one side, we think God wants us to be good. He says, no, he, I want you to be new. I want you to be new. 1 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. That's what he wanted to do with us in his grace. And renewing us day after day. The obedience-based life is a rehabilitation, whereas the grace-based life is a transformation. In the obedience-based life, Jesus is more like our boss. In the grace-based life, he's our savior. The obedience-based life is a religion. It's man basically saying, okay, God, here's how we're going to work this thing out. The grace-based life is the gospel. It's God saying, no, I'm God, and this is how we're going to do it. Now, friends, I've tried to summarize in this list what we've been, trying to, what we've been looking at ever since the beginning of this year, that grace is not just about saving you. It's about totally redefining you and how you live out your life. And yes, we turn to the obedience-based life because it's predictable and natural. We don't have to think a lot. We don't have to exercise much faith. And we feel there's a bit of a quid pro quo part of it too. If we do certain things, he's going to do certain things in return for us, like he owes us more. But when I look at the obedience-based Christian life track, Click that one up there. I want to show them three things that it's about. The obedience-based Christian life is little more than sin management. It's evangelical behavioral modification. It's all about spiritual image control. It's, a ba- it's, a ba- it's spiritual bankruptcy. And you end up upside down, owing more than what you think the street value of your spiritual mortgage life is worth. And so you end up short-selling all your, all your spiritual potential. And never coming close to what God meant for us to enjoy in Him by having that ongoing relationship. Now, now, this is Scottsdale Bible Church. And I know some of you are such serious scholars of the Bible, and I appreciate that. And you keep us guys honest all the time. Because you will come after us. And you think, Kimmel, you're just making this junk up. You're just making it up. You came up with a cool little list, and you think, okay, now, there you are. Now, okay, so look, I took that list, and I spent a couple hours on it just the other day, just starting to annotate it. Let's put that one up there. Now, I, now look, there's over 130 verses I found in a couple of hours, but I'm reading through the Bible this year, and I've decided to mark every verse that goes with that, and I guarantee you, by this time next year, there will be thousands of references on each side validating this is the story of the gospel. Jesus came to set your heart free, not just at the point of salvation, but for life. And he wanted to take, he wanted to be the power behind your life, not you. I have no business running my life. I ran my life for 17 years. I was a, I was an idiot. And every time I've tried to tell you, know, just say, did Jesus let me drive this one for a while? I've just run the bus off a cliff. And so this is, this is the gospel. And, we, and, and, and I'm going to work more on this for you. But I'm telling you, this is where God, God's message to us is. But then, then again, then again, we'll have people. Jamie's had this already in this, in this series. 
people will come up. And I've, since I've written on grace, I mean, that's the story of my life. That's all I try and talk about with parents is how to embody God's grace in their relationship with their kids. People will come up and they'll say, yeah, but what about truth? In fact, some of you are thinking that right now. If you've been thinking that since I started talking, well, yeah, but what about truth? Okay, I want to say this as graciously as I can. Now, please, you know, the, my heart is filled with love for you. Anytime somebody says, what about truth? Here's what I know about that person. They don't know anything about grace. They don't get grace. They get saving grace, but they don't get the ongoing grace. They don't get it. Because if they did, they'd never make that statement. It just, you couldn't, you couldn't come out of your mouth because it wouldn't make any sense. Let me ask you something. Is Jesus dealing with you in grace? Did he abandon the truth when he decided to hook up with you in grace? Did he throw the, did he throw the rules and regulations overboard on you? No. When you do something stupid, even though he's dealing with you in grace, does he stand in your air hose? I mean, think about it. I mean, does he, does he said the Bible, them whom he loves, he chastens, he corrects us. There's ways that he corrects us, just like you would with a child that does something stupid. But he always does it with our best interest in mind. He always has it with a heart connection still in place. He does it graciously. And so, so I, I just want to say, and sometimes I wonder if they really get truth. Because you see, Jesus was surrounded by people that knew the truth. They were in his face all the time. These are the people that knew reams of scripture and they had their kids memorizing reams of scripture and they had their kids getting into the doctrine and they knew, the, they, 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 they knew all the nuances of the Bible. And on top of that, they had a biblical worldview. They were called Pharisees. And there's nothing wrong with your kids learning scripture. We wanted our kids to know scripture. We wanted them to have a biblical worldview. We wanted them to, but, but you see, why was it that Jesus always got after him? He says, he says, if you wouldn't have said what you said, if you knew what I meant when I said in my word, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Because they didn't get it. So I don't even think they figured out what the truth was about because the truth was supposed to set their hearts free. And instead, it was locking them down and their families. And so I, I say that with all due respect because I, you know why I, I am so certain on this? Because I lived that life. I would have been very quick to say, yeah, but what about the truth? I know that. I know the con. Just like, you know, when an alcoholic is around somebody that's denying it, in denial, they know the con. They've been there. And I've been through this stuff so long, and I, I can smell it. And I don't look down on anybody for, for coming from that direction because I was there, and I feel so sorry for him because God has something more for all of us. Well, when it comes to this, I, I, let, let's bring this to our, to our kids, because this is very important with our children. Let me, okay, can I ask you a question? I, I have a gift. It's, a, it's an interesting, I, I don't know, you know, sometimes you, people just find that they can do certain things, and I was given a gift. I have the ability, if you tell me your kid's name and birthday, or their birthday and their gender, I can tell you how long they will live. It's a gift. Let's start right here. Is this girl, this is one of the girls named, with the name of Grace? Yeah, by the way, you notice how many kids were named Grace? We named our daughter Grace, too, except we call her Charis. That's the Greek word for Grace. Okay, when was this little girl born? March 22nd, okay. I'm sorry? So, oh, that, that, that's the September 22nd? Okay, okay. She's a girl. She's going to live forever. 
And that's why we can't play fast and loose on this one. That's why we cannot afford to go down that path of that obedience-based life that puts us in the driver's seat and breaks God down into a bunch of little compartments. Because there's a lot on the line. These kids are going to live forever. And what's happening now as we parent them has a whole lot to do with what that forever is going to look like, doesn't it? And so we've got to, we, we, we got to, we got to do due diligence here. So Darcy and I, we, you know, we're, we're, my, my wife's over here and we started having kids and, and, we, and we wanted to do this thing right too. And one thing she and I, when we, when we started raising our kids, we didn't want our children to grow up in a home where they felt that God's pleasure was determined by their behavior. We, nor did we want them to feel that there was no latitude in how they lived out the different nuances of their personality. Strident parenting formulas have a bad habit of using spiritual molds to create look-alike, sound-alike, act-alike Christian kids. And I wasn't interested in that because it ran counter to the way God operates in his grander relationship with his creation. And, 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 and there's nothing about that, that kind of plan of parenting that encourages original, an original relationship with God, let alone orig, original kids. So I didn't want my children to end up as mini-me's of my, of my faith. And so Darcy and I, as we assessed our parenting options, we wanted a style that took into account our children's unique personalities, their fragile natures, the corrupted world that surrounded them, their personal bents, the individual pilgrimages on which God would take them. And we wanted our method to be empowered by our confidence in God rather than our concerns about the messed up world we were raising our kids in. Now, by the way, that's not to suggest that we did not have concerns about the culture that surrounded them. Obviously we did, but we've always believed that it was dwarfed by the infinite power of God to overcome that world. And we believed if we could put his grace center stage in our own hearts and love them through that grace, then they could shine in the middle of all that. See, I believe God can actually empower us, Christian parents, to raise our kids to actually thrive in the midst of the wicked, wicked culture around them. Now, I didn't say survive. That's, that's barely getting by. I said to thrive, where they actually get spiritually better and stronger because of that world around them. And I believe he can do it, but it's all about our connection with him. And so, look, I don't want to be a name dropper, but <laughs> Jesus said... Um, no. <laughs> we decided we wanted to raise our kids the way Mary and Joseph raised Jesus. We wanted to raise our kids the way Mary and Joseph raised Jesus. Let's look to the word. Look, Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, I want to, uh, this is a famous passage because it, we look at it every Christmas. It's the Christmas stories in Luke 2, isn't it? But there's another interesting story about an incident that happened in Jesus' life when he was 12 years old. And I want to look at that. And, and to set it up, let's start at verse 39. Because 39 and 40 are two hinge verses that kind of turn the door from the, the, the story of Jesus born in Bethlehem and set up this, this story of him in Jerusalem when he was 12. Now look at this. It says, it says, And when they had performed, this is Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and a child grew, and he became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the favor, that's the Greek word charis, it could, in some translations, translate it grace, and the grace of God was upon him. So, so he's saying the grace of God was upon him. Notice they're also involved in the physical, the intellectual, emotional parts, as well as the spiritual. You know, he's, he grew and became strong, he was filled with wisdom. So they're doing all the normal things that parents do. But they also, when it came to the, to the spiritual part, they wanted to make sure it was all coming 
from a point of grace. Now watch this. What he does is, what Luke does is he shows that he says he's in a grace-based family. And then he gives an incident where you actually see this grace being played out. Watch this. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Okay, now let's hit the pause button here for a second. If this were the first time you ever saw this passage, you might be wondering, what was the Heavenly Father thinking assigning the earthly care of His only begotten Son to these two people? <laughs> that they actually take off and leave Him behind in a big city and, and are unaware of it. Now, I can completely understand taking off and leaving your kids behind and being totally aware of it. I mean, we thought about doing it often. But this looks like child neglect until you read on more. And it says, verse 44, but supposing him to be in their group, their entourage uh, of, of friends and family, they went a day's journey, and then they began searching for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. It's, you know, this is a large gathering of family. They're all heading back up to Nazareth. And, and so, and you know how family gatherings are. Uh, family gather, the rule, the rule, uh, the standard rule is adults keep your eye on whatever kids near you. Whether it's yours or not, you're responsible for whatever kids are near you. And so they're, they're not worried. And plus, this isn't a little kid. He's 12. And he's a pretty responsible kid, too. But when dinner time, as you read on, it says, but it, it says, and when they did not find, it, it, they began searching for him among their relatives and friends. Because when dinner time came and he didn't show, we've got a problem. Because this is a boy, he's 12, and it's dinner. <laughs> they show up to top their tanks. So, after th so when they did not find him, look at this, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in a temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Once again, the pause button for a second. Let's put ourselves in their shoes for a second. Look, if you've ever lost your kid for two or three hours, like in a mall or an amusement park or the woods, the, you know, this is, it is so frightening, isn't it? And when you finally find them, you're just so grateful that they're okay. But this hasn't been three hours. This has been three days. And when they find them, it wasn't like he was kidnapped or something. Or he was actually lost. He was having a great time for three days. This is different. I mean, the, the, I feel so sorry for them because they're so frightened and they're checking all the places, you know, hope he's not like the juvenile lockup and the, and the ER and all that stuff. And then at night, they're, they're in their, their, their hotel and they're trying to pick up some sleep to pick up the hunt. And poor Mary's thinking, I've misplaced God. <laughs> Boy, am I going to be in trouble for this one. <laughs> and then when they locate him, they find out not only is he okay, he's been just completely fine the entire time that they have him in. And see, this causes a whole different reaction, not relief. This causes anger. You just want to take him and shake him because he's, he's 12. They don't have shaken 12-year-old syndrome. Uh, you know, they, they, their head's on good by then. And so you're thinking, oh, man, I'm so mad at you. And Mary speaks for the two of them. Look at that. She says, she says, son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She is just exasperated with this boy. Then he comes back with this one. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? No, what is it? You, you, what were you searching for? You should have known I was up here. Now, how are they supposed to know that? Okay, you got to do some detective work here. 
And I'm just taking a guess, but there is one thing that happened that might have tipped them off. Go up there in the temple mount. He's up there. Because Gabriel appeared to them before he, he even came onto the scene. Remember, remember Gabriel came to them and said, look, you're going to have a son. He's got an agenda, a big one. Work with him. Cooperate. That's basically a, a you know, a, a, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said. <laughs> and so he said, hey, look, we sent you angels for crying out loud. How many parents get that? <laughs> they told you I had some things to do. But look what's next. It says, but they did not understand what the saying that he spoke to them. They didn't get it. So we're at an impasse here. They're frustrated. He can't figure out why. They don't get it. So what happened? Watch this. This is where grace shows up. Watch this. And then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And look at Mary. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. That is not the reaction of people in normal day life. If I was Joseph, I'd have said, you are so grounded. You have no personal life for the rest of your life under our roof. And if I can extend it beyond that, I will. This was uncalled for. And yet they didn't do it. And look, Mary says, she treasured this in your heart. Last time I checked, you treasure things you value. And yet just the verse before that says she didn't understand what was going on. And two verses before that, she's yelling at him. See, they responded differently under stress of life than we normally would when we're in our behavioral modes, our scorekeeping modes, because they were operating in grace. And Jesus submitted to them. I mean, he could have said, excuse me, but I think you've forgotten who you're dealing with here. <laughs> How about I refresh your memory? You see, it was me who came up with this cool idea, let there be light. I made the air you're breathing, the gravity that's holding you to the ground. You don't even know what I'm talking about. I could write out the, uh, the, 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 uh, the code of your DNA. Once again, you don't even know what I'm talking about. I made you, and you, don't, you can't tell me what to do. He had the authority to say that, but he didn't because he was dealing with his mother and father in grace. They were dealing with him in grace. So with that in mind, let's see what this thing, how we play this thing out. And let me just kind of apply this thing. I got a couple of quick little applications that can help you take this and, 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 and make it your own at home. First of all, I, I want to I put up a one-sentence statement that can save the day for you when it comes to how to define grace-based parenting or grace-based family. Grace-based parenting is simply treating your kids the way God treats his kids. That's all it is. So, let me ask you something. When you go out and do something really stupid, does God browbeat you? Does he remind you what an idiot you were for a long period of time? Does he remind you how much that cost for him to pay for you on the cross for that dumb thing? Does he do that to you? No. Does he discipline us? Yes, he loves us, he corrects us. But does he browbeat us? No. Does he guilt us? No. Does he shame us? No. And, and, and so, so when you're tempted to do certain things, just go back to this one. Grace-based parents treating my kids the way God treats me, and God wouldn't do this to me, what I want to do to these kids. And then here, let me give you an overarching job description for a parent, a grace-based parent. The job of a parent is to connect and stay connected to the heart of their children in such a way that they can condition their children to have a heart for God. That's our job, to connect to the heart of a child. You under, understand, on that obedience-based side, all that, every one of those, you know what those do? Every one of those shoves a wedge between your heart and your kid. Every one of them just shoves a wedge and shoves a wedge between their heart and God. Every one. On that grace-based side, they just connect, 
connect, connect, connect between parent and kid and child and God. Now, for your note takers, write down Psalm 127.1 and write down 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Those will give you some great background. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So you want to use the biblical building code that God had for it, which is his grace, the way he's building his family. And in and in, and in 1 Peter 4, 7, pick, pick that up there in verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And if anyone should do... If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Speak to your kids the way God speaks to you. He doesn't work you over. He doesn't guilt you. He doesn't shame you. He loves you. If anyone serves, they should do with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll rattle off four things. That, and you can go deeper to the, into these things if you want to read more on them. But here's four things that we have found that can really embody God's grace in a family. Create what I call the atmosphere of grace. First of all, give your kids the freedom to be different. When I say different, I mean like weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky. Grace-based homes have room for those kind of kids. Obedience-based homes do not have room for those kind of kids. Legalistic homes, fear-based homes, no way. Sin management homes, behavioral modification homes, no way they have room for those kind of kids. And yet kids are weird and bizarre. I don't mean they're being sinful. They're just weird, that's all. They're weird. I always thought every adult should, we would all do ourselves, we'd be much better parents and grandparents if we always kept our high school yearbook nearby. And when our kids come out dressed for school, and they're modest, but they look like they were dragged behind the bus and they haven't even gone yet. Just get out your yearbook and look at yourself. I was a 60s kid. We were the ugliest people that ever went to high school. <laughs> they took pictures of us to prove it. But you're raising one-of-a-kind kids. Let them be unique. God hasn't striped two zebras the same yet. He hasn't made two sets of fingerprints the same yet. He hasn't painted two sunsets the same yet. He's a God of variety. Let's not try and make a bunch of Stepford children out of our Christian kids. The little girls, they play with their, their Barbies. And they'll get four of them and they'll play The View. Five of them. And, and then here's Whoopi and then here's that Hasselhoff girl and they argue. <laughs> And then the son comes along and he takes the Barbie. What's he? He bites the head off, throws it like a grenade. They're weird. They're just, don't worry about it. They're just kids. Don't worry about it. And then they become teenagers. That's, a, that's just teenagers. Please. Another way is give your kids the freedom to be vulnerable. Where they don't have to wear masks over their heart. That their e emotions and feelings always get safe harbor with you, even though they may tend to be a bit dramatic and overdramatic at times. I love the verse 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He's, you know, Paul had some stuff that he was really troubled by, and he went to God, asking God to take it away, a weakness in his life. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Our kids have so many things that can cause them stress. In fact, I heard the best def definition of adolescence is this. It's a 24-hour day, seven day a week, 365 day a year battle to keep from being embarrassed. 
These are very self-conscious children. They need parents and grandparents that don't marginalize that or trivialize that. A third way is give them the freedom to be candid. Let them tell you what's on their heart, even though it's stuff you're not crazy about hearing. Maybe they're doubting all the faith stuff. They go through an era where they say, you know, I don't believe that the Bible is God's word. I don't believe Jesus was God. I don't believe Jesus is the only way. This is not a time to panic and go hire, you know, Wayne Grudem and duct tape them to your kid's face until the kid gives up. I mean, you know, some theologian. You don't have to do that. Smarter kids than yours and mine have gone through these stages in their life. And, and God can, can bring them, draw them in with his grace, especially if he's got your heart. And then fourthly, give them the freedom to make mistakes. Grace-based homes give their kids the freedom to make mistakes. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for those mistakes, because there certainly are. But if home is where life is making up its mind, and I believe it is, then a home must be a place where disappointments are processed, sins are endured, and no matter what they do, it never means the end of a relationship. Now, where did I get these four things from? I got them from how Jesus is dealing with us in his grace. He gives us the freedom to be different and vulnerable and candid and the freedom to make mistakes. Now, you're here, though, and you're saying, you know, I have a problem, Tim. I have a huge problem. And that all you're talking about, that grace that that we can give to our kids, I I have a problem. I never received it. I I never had that point in my life where I've, I've received that from Jesus. You know, when this service is over, there's going to be some people standing up here that already love you. And if you're one of those people here, say, I don't understand that first part, how I get to know that grace in the first place. Come up here and talk with them. They'd be glad to walk you through that. But for all of us here, we want to bring grace home, and we want to, infect, we want to uh, empower our kids with the power of God's grace. But the fact is, there's so much about being families and raising kids that is just a big unknown. And, and it scares us. Who's kidding who? It's frightening. And some of the choices they make are frightening. It reminds me of a period of time in England's history. In 1939, Hitler had already made his move into the Netherlands and into Poland, and he wanted the whole thing. He wanted all of Europe. And he made it real clear. I'm come, I want it all. And to get it all, he had to bring England to its knees, and they knew it. And there's no way they were going to get out of this without facing off with, with, with him. And so King George VI actually came into power. And by the way, if, you, if you've seen the, the king's speech, this is the same king we're talking about. And king George VI inherited the throne from his brother who abdicated the throne because he was in love with some gal from the United States. And he, he left the throne behind. And so, so, so here's King George VI who never wanted to be king. And on top of that, he had a, a stuttering problem. So he's very self-conscious about that. But he was brought into that right as they declared war on Hitler. And if you saw the movie, he, they tell that he, he actually does this speech that, that shows them, okay, we're going to get through this, folks. We're, we're going to get through this. It's a, it's a powerful speech. But shortly after that speech that you see in the movie, he addressed them again on Christmas Eve, 1939. Now, this is 1939, and they knew we're in for the fight of our lives. And, and many of us are going to die. And we need hope. In fact, it was just a few months later, and the bombs started raining down on London. And so he came to the microphone to talk to the British Empire, and he wanted to give them hope. And, 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 and here's what King George VI said to them. 
put this up here. I want you to see this. Remember, it's Christmas Eve, just before New Year's. He said, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I might tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than the known way. He could have given him empty promises. He could have thrown out a lot of bravado. He could have given him war, war game plans and strategies, but no, no, no. He, he said, he knew they were in for a big fight. He knew they had a, a huge enemy to face, and he knew it was going to cost them dearly. But he also knew that there was one that they could put their confidence in, and that God would get them through. Listen, you're raising kids and you're walking into the darkness, and you want some kind of a simple, marched-out, easy-formulated plan, especially for the spiritual part of their life. And God says, just take my hand. Walk into that darkness. I will be better to you than any light you can make on your own, and I'm much safer than any known way you could come up with. He wants to do that for you, my friends. That is his grace. That is the gospel. Every month, we take up an elder's offering for different unique needs. And this, this month, we, we want to take up the, uh, the uh, ministers in training uh, offering. And these are for people that are interning here that are going to seminary. And they, in order for them to have more on-the-job training, they just need to have, they can't have regular jobs. So we just help them out on their, on their seminary costs. If you would like to help them, we'd really appreciate that. We're going to have the ushers come up here, and we'll sing, and then we'll be on our way. And I hope you go with a little more of an understanding of God's everyday grace tucked away in your heart. Thank you, God.